So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. Uh, 2 Corinthians, you, you, for some of you, you remember that we had worked our way through the book of 1 Corinthians and then uh, took a break and spent time in Ecclesiastes. Uh, and now we're going to be coming back to 2 Corinthians this morning. I'm not sure how long of a journey it will take for us to get through 2 Corinthians. Uh, I'm not feeling a rush uh, to get through it. There it is. Great. Uh, this is going to be a really rough sermon if there was no Prezi this morning. I'm just going to give you fair warning. Uh, so I'm thankful that that's working this morning. Uh, I'm not sure how long it's going to take us to work our way through 2 Corinthians, but I am excited about the book and see God's particular kindness and grace in having us work through 2 Corinthians, particularly in the season that our culture and our world and so many in our church find themselves. And so we're actually, this is, uh, I was telling my wife this week, I, I struggle at times with these kinds, types of sermons, because they are, um, they, in some ways, I think it'll feel a little bit like a Bible college class. Uh, and so I said, I, you know, I really pray and hope uh, that it's engaging and uh, people understand it and it's more sermonic than, than study that way. But when we look at 2 Corinthians, there is such significance to the overall context of why Paul writes it, the dominant theme of it, that it is critically important to understand why is it here and what's happening and and how did we get here, how did we arrive here. Uh, I'm one of those guys that loves history and uh, those things just immediately engage me, but I know that's not the reality for everyone. Uh, So we're going to work really, really hard this morning uh, to help you, and I just ask that you patiently help to work through this. And what we're going to do is we're going to give the context big picture. Uh, We're going to give context just in Scripture with where we're here. We're going to really finish this morning with the dominant theme of Corinthians and three key texts that would help you. Uh, I would encourage you this week, uh, maybe even in the weeks ahead, to take at least one moment Uh, to sit down and either just read the whole book. It really won't take you that long. It's 13 chapters, um, and it it reads fairly quickly. And I think of all of Paul's writing, it's one of those that's the easiest to see the flow that's going on. Uh, Or it may serve you to just have it read to you. And there's obviously a number of Bible apps out there. Some of you actually like to use those Bible apps that read in the middle of sermons sometimes. So um, you're already aware of those. So you can find those and, and have the whole book of 2 Corinthians read to you and Uh, Just let it begin to soak into your heart and mind. But let's start here. I think this might help us a little bit with the church in Corinth. What happens when you drift from your mission? What happens uh, when you said, this is what we're doing, this is where we're going, point A to point B, but then you get off somehow and you end up with what uh, we would call in leadership books and studies, mission drift. Well, in the 12 to 1300s, I think a good illustration of this uh, was in the 12 to 1300s, we have the Middle Ages uh, in the church, and at the time you really had the Catholic Church, which was at the time a mingled group of believers within it. This is pre-Reformation. But they looked around and they were surrounded by the poor and the impoverished, and in particular, it's largely an agrarian culture around the world at this point. And like any agrarian cultures where there's farming, you'd have seasons of crop failures and of pestilence and economic despair or sudden illness. Well, what does a farmer do when they don't have the means to feed their family? What do they do when they don't have enough money or resources to buy seed for the next season? 
And so the religious looked at this need and they, they said, well, we don't want these people to starve. Literally, people would just starve to death. Entire families would die. Uh, generationally, uh, the, a family line would be wiped out. And so the church stepped forward and they established something called Montes Pietas, or Mountains of Compassion. And, and initially, when they did this, they would just give money to people or give goods to people. And so if you had need, you would come and they would say, okay, here's seed for the next season. Here's this, here's that. But they quickly realized that that appealed to the lazy among them and those that were unwilling to work. And so they came up with another form of this mountain or Montes Pietas, Mountains of Compassion. They said, we're actually going to do these as like small loans. This is microfinancing hundreds of years ago. And so if you had needs, sudden need, sudden economic need or an illness, sickness, you could go to this mountain of compassion and a Franciscan monk, that's who ran it, they would meet you and you could get a small loan, typically low or no interest. Uh, maybe all you had was some treasured dress or treasured piece of fabric or old item, uh, something from antiquity, and you would kind of give it to them in earnest and they would give you resources to either pay for medical bills or provide seed for your crops. And, and this just transformed society. People stopped dying because they could receive medical care. Farmers were able to get what they needed for the crops. And then when they would harvest, they would pay back and they, and they would recover uh, from what they had loaned to the Montes Pietas. And the Franciscan monks, obviously, they were not in it to make money. Uh, and so they would hang on to the goods and then give them back to them and just were excited because this motivated those who would work hard and who wanted to do well. Uh, but it also demotivated the lazy because they would lose their goods if they gave it and never came back. Now, the problem is that there was mission drift, and we actually still have Montes Pietas today. We actually still have Mountains of Compassion. You just actually know them as pawn shops. You see, because what happened was over time, the church realized, you know, like, this is taking a lot of our time, and we had these private businessmen in the community that said, let's take this on for you. But suddenly, they saw it as a money-making opportunity. And so this has literally existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so now what you typically have is pawn shops operating in lower income areas who take goods, charge exorbitant interest to make you pay it back, and then they just resell what you gave them anyway if you can't get it quick enough. What happens when there's mission drift? What happens when the initial goal is right and the foundation seems secure, but then you drift? And mission drift can happen to anyone individually and certainly can happen to any organization and I would actually say that that's what's happened to the church in Corinth. They've drifted from their mission. God has said, this is what I want you to do. Paul's established them. And now they are way off course. And there's a whole history that happens to the church for how they get from Paul spending tons of time founding them to writing in 2 Corinthians what is his most emotional letter, his most personal letter, and frankly, his most confrontational letter out of all that he writes. How do they get from point A to point B? And so we're going to want to study that uh, in the coming months at least. But an overall theme, and I'm going to come back to this to prove this throughout the sermon, but an overall theme of the, the letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, is this. The weakness of the Christian declares the glorious strength of Christ. Now, if we're honest, that immediately offends our cultural way of thinking. We're not very different from the Jews of old. They went to get a king, and who did they want? The tallest, strongest, handsomest guy in the land. 
Uh, we exist in a culture today that still, uh, when you study leadership traits, you might remember this photo from uh, oh, about four and a half years ago, five years ago, but it was when all the uh, Republican candidates were running in the primary at the time, and they were all lined up on stage, and a photo was taken of them, and they all looked pretty level, uh, but I don't remember if it was the Times or the Post, somebody else, they posted another photo from another angle, and Jeb Bush was standing next to Donald Trump, and he was on his tiptoes. Because we still live in a culture that so values height. I'm going to start beating this drum, right, as a short dude, right? So no, they, but they so value height, and they link it with leaders, right? So um, we, most people know politically, uh, Nixon was killing JFK until, uh, in the polls until they had a televised uh, debate, and Nixon was coming off the flu, and Kennedy was coming out of Florida well-tanned, handsome, and young. And it totally swung. Appearances, we tend to be people in our culture, whether it's Israel of old, let's give us King Saul, or whether it's people with JFK and Nixon, or it's our current political climate, we tend to look on the outside and think that that equates strength and power and leadership. And so when Paul writes 2 Corinthians and he says, no, listen, listen now, the weakness of a Christian, that is what God will use to declare the glorious strength of Christ. It's going to cut cross grain to us. If we're honest, we are products of our culture, and all of us are going to tend to value visible strength and health, and, and then assume that must be what God uses. And Paul writes a 13 chapters letter uh, to demonstrate that's not reality. Well, so how do, we, how do we really get there? Well, let's give a little bit of background to the city uh, and to the church itself so that we can understand what's happening. First of all, the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was actually destroyed by Roman conquest in 146 BC. Most of the stories you've probably heard of the immorality and the um, gross sexual sins that happened in Corinth, most of that, the vast majority of those stories actually occurred prior to this Roman conquest and destruction in 146 BC. Now, just to be very clear, um, Corinth, by Paul's day, was by no means a moral, ethical epicenter of, of, of trust and integrity. But it also wasn't the Corinth that maybe if you've grown up in church, most of us have heard how warped and twisted it was. That really occurred largely prior to the Roman conquest or destruction in 146 BC. So Roman, Rome comes in, they destroy the city of Corinth, and they, and they raise it really to the ground. But then this guy that you've heard of, Julius Caesar, about 100 years later, 44 BC, he comes along and he says, well, let's reestablish Corinth. And so what he does is he sends former slaves, slaves who had bought themselves out of Roman slavery, uh, Roman soldiers who were Gentile in history um, and in background, but had become Roman soldiers. They were not necessarily Roman citizens, uh, but they were from barbarian and other sects. He sends this whole group of people to refound the city of Corinth. And so by Paul's day, it's become this prominent trading city. Um, the, it's the location of the governor for the entire region. Uh, in, in the, and it's filled with incredible wealth. Now, the reason is because of this canal or uh, cut through that they had made to join two seas. This had long been dreamed of and uh, previous uh, rulers in Corinth had tried to create a land bridge and uh, other pathways, but then finally somebody came through and they cut this. And by doing this, Corinth sits right at this spot, at this isthmus where they cut this canal. It becomes this major trade port. So everybody's coming through there. It becomes this city that is this culturally diverse place. It's incredibly cosmopolitan. 
Uh, it's the third largest city in, in Rome at this point, in the Roman provinces. Some estimate that the size of Corinth was anywhere from 200 to 250,000 people to as many as a million in the entire region. Uh, it, in their average numbers, probably right around the similar size to Columbia, the Columbia metropolitan area, about three quarters of a million people or so. Because Corinth was this trading port then, and because it had such economic diversity, it also had incredible racial diversity. Uh, they always were trying to be on the cusp of the next greatest thing. So they actually to, to establish the Corinthian games that they would play there that really rivaled the Olympic games. And so everybody knew about Corinth. Corinth was a place people wanted to live. As a result of the economic and racial diversity, then there's also a great deal of religious diversity in the city. You have a large Jewish contingent there. Uh, you certainly have all the pagan worship uh, of, of uh, let's, let's say, ancient versions of earth worship and earth gods and goddesses worship. You have the Greek influences of their gods worship going on. And so it was, it was kind of noted as this really pretty inclusive, wealthy, um, metropolitan area. But also, whenever you have that kind of metropolitan economic religious diversity, you end up with, with class structure that happens. And so Corinth was also noted as a place that had intense class structures within it. And so to this flush city, Paul comes. It's not surprising that he goes there. But he arrives, and it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 18. I'm actually going to read this to you, this entire passage, because it is important to understand how Corinth began. And what I really want to highlight as I read this is Paul's relational connection to them. This is a place that Paul knows personally. This is a place that holds tremendous relational connection for Paul. Acts chapter 18 says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Now, I just want to pause there. This is important. This helps us date Corinthians, because we know that that decree happened in A.D. 49. So, his dates Corinthians sometime post-49, uh, and most likely pretty soon after it for Luke to include that in Acts. And so we're going we're gonna to start initial dating of the letters to Corinthians based upon the origin of the church. So the origin of the church, somewhere 49, 50, 51, somewhere in there. Picking back up in Acts, the story. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Now we know Paul has this ongoing relationship with Aquila and Priscilla. We know that they are trusted friends. We know that they are fellow believers and saints, but it's not just that he gathers with them on Sundays. And, and we know that many of you feel very connected to one another, as you should. Uh, church really becomes family to us, or, or it should. Uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But imagine, these aren't just people that they worship with on Sunday. Paul spends all day, every day with this sweet couple. And so they become very close friends, and the fact that they're able to work together tells us a lot about their interpersonal relationships. Let's just be honest, there are people in our lives that um, we would otherwise be great friends with, but we don't want to spend 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day every day with, right? That, that's hard. So the fact that they're able to do that together tells you a lot 
about the, the level of relationship Paul has with them. Verse 4 in, in Acts 18, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Uh, just a quick reminder, Christ means Messiah. Uh, we typically think of his name, Jesus Christ, but it's Messiah is a title here. So he's trying to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And I love this uh, move by Paul because listen to what it says next. His house was next door to the synagogue. So, um, so like Paul has a throwdown with the religious leaders in the synagogue and just moves his ministry 50 yards next door, right? And so now if anybody's coming, hey, that's, where's Paul at? We, we wanted to come here, Paul. Oh, he's next door. So here we go. Well, shockingly, this only makes them more angry. Um, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. We can also date Corinthians and the found, off the founding of the church because we know when Galileo was there. Uh, and by the end of AD 51, he was done as proconsul in this region. So we know we're operating 49 to 51 in there somewhere. We know that there's this heavy Jewish contingent. You have the leader, of, the former leader of the synagogue, now is a believer with his whole household. We know that there's a significant Gentile contingent. We know that there's immense wealth in the church, and we know that there's tremendous poverty. Overall, there is a significantly heavy, heavy Gentile influence in the life of the church because of, as you've seen, the Jewish reaction and the Jewish rejection of Paul and his message. There is a tremendous cost to following Christ that all these people are experiencing, particularly the Jews. Now, all that becomes the lead up. And so we end up with this time gap between the founding of the church. Paul spends 18 months there, which is significant investment from Paul's missionary journeys, establishing the church, leading the church. Uh, ultimately, when he leaves or departs the church, he takes Aquila and Priscilla with him for a time. And so... Uh, we, we just want to focus then on this truth. And 1 Corinthians records this for us. In one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slave-free. We're made to drink of one spirit. There is this diversity economically. There is this diversity racially. But now there is division that exists in the church. And the divisions that we see beginning to be showcased in the letter 1 Corinthians continue 
throughout the life of this church. If we were to go to extra-biblical writings, after 2 Corinthians, there are letters found that still are dealing with the problems in the Corinthian church. I think that's incredibly important because we live in a divided society and culture. We live in a culture and society that wants to buy into the myth and the lie that church is going to work best, life will work best, communities will work best if we're with people that are just like us. And the gospel comes to tell us that's not true. The gospel has come in part to bring people that are very diverse together under the banner of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And so it's no longer based upon your gender or your economic means or your academic success, whether you're white collar or blue collar, but rather we are united into one family as a result of the work of Jesus. And we have to live in the reality that because we are products of our culture, we're going to feel a constant inner strain against that. We are going to always want to be with the people that make us most comfortable, that make us most happy, that are just like us. In fact, heaven is going to be a collection of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so church should be representative of its surrounding diversity. So this is the beginning of the Corinthian church. We then have to begin to understand the context that leads us to the books of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And the timeline here is important for you to understand what's going on. First of all, we had the founding of that church. We put that at AD 50. Uh, Paul spends 18 months there teaching and preaching. That's an extended period of time, as I've already said, for Paul. Uh, there's lots of instruction and discipleship that he's able to do. We know that his discipleship of Aquila and Priscilla is so profound that later they're the ones who actually disciple Apollos, another prominent elder or minister in the early church. Moving on from AD 50, though, probably around AD 52 or so, Paul hears bad things about the church in Corinth. And it seems as though the, the record that we have from 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote an initial letter. So, there's a pre-1st Corinthians letter. And what he references in 1st Corinthians about that initial letter, as we'll call it, was that folks in the Corinthian church were associating with the sexually immoral. Now, we can guess a little bit here what Paul's talking about. First of all, Paul is not saying they shouldn't have anything to do with lost people who are sexually immoral. That's not what he's saying. That's actually how they misunderstand what he said, that he has to correct in 1 Corinthians. See, when Paul said you shouldn't associate or spend time with those that are sexually immoral, they thought what that meant was don't hang out with lost people who don't live morally the way they should. They said then let's remove ourselves from the world, and the real answer is to not have anything really to do with all those wicked people out there. They might corrupt us, and they might deceive us, or our kids might be duped into what they think or what they believe, or, or we ourselves might be prone to commit these same sins. And that's not all what Paul was saying. Paul wrote this initial letter because here's what we know was happening. There was immorality in the church that they were unwilling to deal with. What Paul emphasized in the letter to 1 Corinthians to clarify his initial letter, was their widespread acceptance of unrepentant sin among their members. There were people in the church that were living in open, unrepentant sexual immorality, 
and they were unwilling to deal with them. And so that had prompted Paul to write this initial letter to them sometime in AD 52 to begin to deal with the problems of the church in Corinth. Now, uh, because we've studied through 1 Corinthians, but that's been a while ago, we may not recall all of what he has to deal with in this realm, but this does begin to tell us something about this church. See, one of the ways he confronts them in 1 Corinthians is that they felt like they were loving these people by not confronting them. See, the Corinthians convinced themselves, we still do church with these people who claim Jesus but live in unrepentant sin because we love them. And Paul basically says, no, you don't, you love you. An unwillingness to enter into the lives of one another and call each other to repentance and to the gospel is a failure at the core of a Christian community. So the church in Corinth, and and it's not even hard to understand why, right? They live in a land of diversity. They live in a land of inclusivity. Uh, You have this religion here, you have this moral ethical code here, and you have these guys that are traveling through on their ships, and you have these traders and these merchants, and if I live by the ethical code of the Bible, how am I even going to survive economically? And this mindset had begun to come into the life of the church. I I would say, to be very frank with you, uh, not throwing stones at Kennerly Road, but I would say the broader American church is really no different. Um, where there's this mindset of we can't confront or deal with sin. And so Paul has to write this initial letter confronting them. And so we would want to know how does the church at Corinth respond? Well, we have hints of this in 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians respond to Paul's initial letter with their own letter. (laughs) They send a letter back to him. And in their letter, they ask him all these questions. And they want to know all kinds of answers about things like spiritual gifts and marriage and um, how do we understand divorce and remarriage and, and how do we think about the exercise of spiritual gifts. Isn't tongues the best, Paul? Isn't that the best gift of all? And so when they, when they bring this letter to him, though, folks carry this letter to Paul. It's, you know, there's not the postal service. They give it to somebody in the church to bring it to Paul. When they bring it to Paul, they bring lots of other information with Paul, too. So it's like they hand him the letter from the Corinthian church, and they say, hey, Paul, here's the letter from the Corinthians. Oh, by the way, let me tell you some other mess that's going on in our church. And significantly, what he goes after first in, in the, his letter, 1 Corinthians, which is a response to this, is not the questions they ask. But he goes first after a concept, and the concept is the rejection of spiritual authority. They're finding their identity somewhere else, and so they are rejecting the authority of Christ through spiritual leaders in their lives, in their homes. And so he references, and I've just put a few references up there from 1 Corinthians that help us to understand that this is what is going on. And so Paul now needs to respond to this letter. So he's written his initial letter. They've written back with all their own questions. And so now we get the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a response. It's a follow-up to his initial letter and a response to their letter back asking questions. This happens sometime between A.D. 53 and A.D. 54. He opens it right there in verse 11 of chapter 1. It's going to be by Chloe's people. There's quarreling among you, my brothers. He gets right to it. They, can you, get, you just imagine, uh, they show up with the letter of 1 Corinthians from Paul's uh, trusted advisors, and, and it may have either even been Timothy who carried the letter himself. Um, the text isn't quite clear if Timothy was sent with the letter or sent after the letter. Um, 
But, but the guy shows up, a servant of Paul, a co-worker with him. He shows up. They all gather together Sunday morning. They open it up, and they're all looking forward to hearing questions answered about things like marriage and uh, singleness and uh, headship and authority in the home and spiritual gifts. And he opens up with this, hey, I hear from Chloe. And he just outs her, right? Throws her straight under the bus, right? I hear about all this mess going on there. And this would have been so offensive to them. So shocking that this is the way Paul is going to deal with them. But Paul understands, unless he deals with these core root issues first, he really can't even speak into all these other questions that they have. And so we see the beginnings of a Corinthian conflict that is incredibly important to the book of 2 Corinthians. Maybe if we explain it this way. They have an external focus on approval. And this really begins to develop in 1 Corinthians chapters 3 into chapter 4. They're rejecting Paul and his apostolic authority because he doesn't look as successful to them as Apollos and others. See, they look at Paul's life and, and they see his ministry and they see what he's doing and they see how he gets run out of cities, he gets run out of towns, they see how he gets abused, they see how he's weak, they see how he doesn't preach nearly as well as Apollos. You see, Paul comes and founds the church at Corinth. Um, he links up with Aquila Priscilla. He takes Aquila Priscilla with him when he leaves. Then they come back to Corinth and when they get back, there's this guy Apollos there and they're like, let's disciple you. But then the Corinthians hear Apollos preaching, and man, he is amazing. So whether Paul stuttered, we're not sure. Whether Paul was just confused in his speaking ability. Maybe he talked too fast or too slow or used words that were just too difficult and verbiage and vocabulary. They had a hard time following. And they're all like, man, what's Paul? Look at this dude. We got Apollos now. We don't need to submit to Paul's authority. On top of that, Paul's the dude that wants to write this letter to us, rebuking us, that initial letter. I mean, Paul is all over our case. We just wanted some information. He jumps down our throat. We don't like Paul. And so let's reject it. He doesn't look successful. He doesn't sound successful. They live in a culture that bases success on visible things. They, they live in a culture. There was one guy in Corinth, and his name matches one of the guys that's listed in Corinth, so we don't know it's the same guy. It's probably a common name. He got burdened for the city of Corinth. He was so wealthy, he paved the entire city out of his own resources. There's a, this other guy, this Gaius, you remember when I was reading about the proconsul, this Gaius guy, guess what? He threw a party for the entire city out of his own wealth, his own resources. He fed the entire city for a week-long celebration or so. So there's lots of money there. And they live in a culture that says, if you've got money, then that means some things about you. It means you've worked really hard. It means you're really smart with your resources. Or you have a right to it because it's what God wants for you. And that was the way they thought. And that's how they began thinking about life in the church. And so if you had this spiritual gift, tongues in particular... This is a sign of God's approval on you. And, and this is a sign of how he loves you. And they began to develop these financial cliques in the church. It's most evidenced in how they celebrated communion, where you had the really wealthy coming, and they would celebrate communion first by themselves. They didn't want any of these poor people sitting with them, right? Because they smell funny, they dress weird, and they didn't bring enough of their own food. 
And so you had these financial clicks in the church, you had spiritual gift clicks in the church, you have all this division happening. And the real danger that begins to develop in the church at Corinth, and we, we see its, its seed bed, its foundation, where it begins is in this idea of visible success equals you're smarter, you've worked harder, and God approves of you, and they begin to translate that into spiritual success. Now, here's the reality. You, a person, or you, if you're here this morning, you find yourself in that category, but a person may have financial success because they've worked really, really hard and because they've been really smart with their money and because God has richly blessed them. The problem happens in our culture, and those are all secular things, when you begin to believe then if a person doesn't have wealth or doesn't have success, then it's because they haven't worked hard or they're not very smart or God is against them. And very subtly, that is a temptation that every one of us here this morning in a first world country, in a very suburban, middle-class church, that we are wealthier than 98% of the rest of the world, we're all tempted, just like the Corinthians, to think. That my success is a product of my hard work, my intelligence, and God's blessing. That may be true. But what we must never believe is if someone doesn't have visible success, it's because they're lazy, stupid, or God's mad at them. And even more important is we put that in spiritual terms then. And this is what the Corinthian church had begun to believe. The Corinthian church had begun to buy into this concept that Paul's not spiritually successful. Paul's getting run out of cities. Paul's seeing fruit die on the vine. Paul's seeing rejection and persecution and beatings and whippings because Paul is lazy, not very smart, and God is against him. And here's what Paul understood. He understood the parable of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. See, Paul understood the truth that when Jesus sowed the gospel, and he tells us to sow the gospel, that one of the soils is stony soil. And when you sow seed among stony soil, and these are all representative of the hearts of men, that some people's heart is like this stony soil, so when the seed falls, it goes in, and it sprouts up quickly because the roots don't go very deep. They're trying to get past all this rock. So the plant grows up quickly, and you get excited, and you say, look at this flourishing. But then when trials and tribulations, listen, when sufferings and lack of visible success come, they die out and they go away. Already in 1 Corinthians, we are seeing what ultimately 2 Corinthians is, is going to be all about. And it's this idea that the true believer won't suffer. The truly righteous believer won't be weak. The truly godly person will experience visible fruitfulness. And Paul knows that that is a death blow to the true gospel. It's not reality. 
And so when they look at Paul, they're beginning to judge him already in 1 Corinthians. And so he spends chapters in 1 Corinthians trying to help them understand that it's not about this. And maybe the most classic is you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and Paul basically says, what is required is that I be a good steward. God will judge me. I don't care what you think of me. That's ultimately what he says. And he then goes on and says, I don't even trust my own conscience. In other words, I think I've been doing what God wants me to do. I think I've been being a good steward. But I, like everyone else, will give an account to God one day. And what he longs for is faithfulness and trust God for any kind of fruitfulness. This begins to be the major problem at the church in Corinth. This idea and this struggle. And so there comes this moment where Paul receives information back that the church of Corinth is not responding well to this letter. And Paul had told them at the end of 1 Corinthians that he was planning on coming to see them. But it was going to be some time removed. He had ministry in Ephesus that God was blessing richly. He wanted to go into Macedonia. And he said, I'm going to stop by and see you folks there. But after he wrote 1 Corinthians and he sends the letter probably with Timothy, somebody brings him information back, whether that's Timothy who came back to him or somebody else. And they said, yeah, Paul, 1 Corinthians did not go over well. They read this letter in the church and there were some pretty serious problems. So Paul scraps his plans It makes a trip that he refers to a pain, as a painful visit. Now, <laughs> Folks, listen, like Paul is so direct. If Paul says it was painful when I came, I'm going to believe it was painful when Paul showed up. Paul showed up and he put some people on blast. He fussed at some people. He got up in some people's faces and he rebuked them in the name of Jesus. He laid waste. And they didn't respond well to that rebuke either. So then when he leaves, he writes them what he calls a severe letter. I don't know what the severity of that letter was. Paul simply refers to it as the intensity of it and the pain of it. Uh, he talks later in 2 Corinthians about the pain that it caused. And so how do we understand that? And we'll unpack that more as we travel through 2 Corinthians. But I guess I would just ask it this way. What is it that one of your shepherds could preach to you today that would be astoundingly painful for you? That would be like the Holy Spirit just reaches in and just cuts you, flays you wide open. Over the years of, of pastoring, um, there's been a few occasions where I've had folks after services uh, greet me, and, and I remember one, they said, it literally felt like you had cameras in my home this week. Now, I don't, right? Their spouse had not texted me, I hope you preach on this this Sunday. Hey, would you jump on this mess? We got this going on. It's really not how ministers operate, how, how shepherds function. But those are really works of the Spirit and God doing works in our life. I certainly have had that experience in my own heart, sitting and listening to the Word. And so Paul speaks to them in very direct and very painful ways. And we learn from 2 Corinthians that a majority responds well to this rebuke. They, they uh, listen Apparently, Paul sent this severe letter with Titus. Uh, he sent Timothy with 1 Corinthians. Timothy, when you read through the New Testament, you really get the sense Timothy is not weak, but, but Timothy um, 
could be perceived as young and weak. And Titus, he sent to the hard cases. So there's some about Titus that Titus wasn't going to mess around. So he sent a severe letter with Titus to these guys. Titus reads a severe letter to them. This is after the painful visit. And he brings word back. And the word he brings back to, to Paul is, praise God, Paul. Most of them get it. <laughs> Finally, we're starting to see some breakthroughs. The people that have been opposed to you are largely diminishing. We're going to be able to press forward. And so Paul is very, very encouraged by this word. And in that moment, he sits down sometime in AD 56, and he writes 2 Corinthians in response to Titus's report. We have here the last communication from Paul to them that's inspired. Um, preserved for us because this is an inspired word of God. And he wants to deal with this remaining contingent in Corinth that's opposed to him. The, the most of them have bought in. And so as Paul writes 2 Corinthians, then we're starting to get an idea of all the history and the relational strain and relational struggle. And we know that a big group of the church in Corinth are ready to be submissive to the truth and submissive to his apostolic authority and receive the truth of the word. But there's still a, a portion there. We don't know how big it is. Just the way he writes 2 Corinthians would seem to indicate that they are a small group but influential group. Um, you know, it's kind of like squeaky wheel gets the grease. They shout the loudest. Anytime uh, you institute change in something, change in an institution, uh, there's, there's what's called the 30-30-30 rule, right? And typically when you institute change, 30% of people, or 33% to, for some of you are going to be like, what, what happened to the other 10%? So 33% of the people uh, embrace change quickly. 33% are almost ambivalent and they just trust the leadership. And then somewhere south of 33%, and actually it's usually closer to 20, are usually outspoken critics who are really opposed to change. So the vast majority of any institution will embrace change. A very small minority, but they tend to be very vocal and represent themselves. These are the kind of people who say, well, I've heard lots of people may be opposed. And I, as I've passed over the years, I've now discovered lots of people is typically them. It's like one. So, um, but they are really opposed. So if we just understand realistically with the way life happens, it's probably a small group. But they're still significant enough in wielding enough influence that Paul feels he needs to write 2 Corinthians to correct them. The structure and style of the letter then, uh, it's really broken down in three sections. First seven chapters, Paul's reconciling with them and he's defending his ministry and its weakness and suffering. Because the remaining contingent are still arguing this idea. Successful Christians aren't weak and they don't suffer. And so Paul knows he still needs to convince people of that reality, the value of weakness and suffering. Chapters 8 through 9, uh, there's a failure in the Corinthian church to care for the oppressed believers in Jerusalem. Now, when you start understanding the sin bent, it's easy to get why. They were supposed to be collecting this offering, and that's part of why Timothy went to start helping them collect this offering when he sent Titus. Uh, his hope was that they would be ready to give this offering because of all these suffering Christians in Judea and in Jerusalem. And initially, the Corinthians had been excited, but over time, they had stopped raising money. They had stopped giving generously to this need. Well, why would they do that? Because guess what? They're convinced you're suffering because of your fault. Why should I help you? I mean, if I believe that successful Christianity is a mark of my intelligence 
and is a mark of my hard work and is a mark of God's approval, then suffering Christianity is a mark of laziness and stupidity and God's anger. So why in the world would I give money to help lazy, stupid, disapproved Christians? It's a practical outworking of their whole heart problem. Whenever we withhold goods from someone in need, you might, the very first letter in the New Testament written by James, pastor in Jerusalem, he talks about looking at someone who would come in and who is hungry and who's thirsty and needs clothes and basically look at them and say, be warm and filled. And he says, you don't have the true faith if that's the way you deal with people. This is gospel-centered. This is a big deal. But there's this propensity from the early church to today's church to buy into these same lies. And then when you get to chapters 10 through 13, Paul finally deals with the leaders of this small contingent, and sarcastically, Paul calls them super apostles. Um, and it's, you get, to, you get to these last chapters, and we see Holy Spirit working through Paul and his boldness on display. And he mocks these guys, he ridicules them, and he does it throughout his own personal testimony. And in fact, all of 2 Corinthians becomes a personal testimony because the, the reality is they're attacking, we, and I've presented it to you as an idea or as a concept, that, that weak and suffering Christianity is not a marker of failed Christianity. But they're not putting it as a philosophy, they're putting it on a person. And so Paul's only way of defending it is what we would call in, the, in Latin an apo, ap, apologia um, pro vita sua, or really it's a defense of one's life. Second Corinthians is an autobiographical defense of a suffering Christian. How does a believer live out following Christ when it's really costing them? And actually, we look at it and we can think of the cost amplified, exaggerated. Because not only is he suffering, but he has brothers and sisters in Christ telling him in the midst of your suffering, and that's what you deserve. Just finished, first book of the year, with, uh, my wife got it as a gift and we read it together. There's a new biography. It's going to be two volumes of Elizabeth Elliot's life. And so volume one is out. It's really, really good. I highly commend it to you. Um, I think it was just released September, October of 2020. But there came a point, and most of you are familiar with their story, her husband along with four other missionaries are martyred in Ecuadorian jungle. Um, they're speared to death. Uh, fast forward a few years, Elizabeth Elliott has the opportunity to go with the sister of one of the other men who was, who was killed, Nate Saint's sister, Rachel. So Elizabeth Elliott, her daughter, her daughter Valerie, her and Jim Elliott's daughter Valerie, and Rachel Saint go into the Ecuadorian jungles and minister to the Warani uh, Indian people. And at some point during her time there, she, she went to Palm Beach with actually some of the murderers of her husband and these other men. Palm Beach, where the men had been trying to reach out to the Warani and had been martyred and killed, and where they ultimately had to bury their bodies. And so she was like visiting the graveside of her husband. And she wrote an article about it, um, just being there and, and what that was like. There's actually still some of the wreckage of the plane sticking out of the sand. And when she got back into the jungle, Rachel Saint had read the article and questioned Elizabeth Elliot's salvation. 
that she could write in such stark terms over her loss and her suffering. Because this is essentially what Rachel Saint said in an unemotional, antagonistic way. If you really believed in the resurrection, why would you sorrow like that? Have you ever had somebody in your suffering and weakness come and kick you while you are down? Just buck up. Be stronger. It's your own fault. Paul had founded this church. Paul had been so afraid in Corinth because of being beaten and suffering before he got there, and he sees the Jews starting to be angry, that God had to send him a vision in Corinth. Paul, hang out. I'm not going to let him kill you here. Paul's courage, Paul's fidelity to the truth is why this church exists. And the church's response to that? Man, you're a sorry apostle. Why should we even listen to you? Look how weak you are. Paul's transparency was used against him as a weapon. What a crying shame that this is so frequently the way we deal with other believers. The theme of 2 Corinthians is the weakness of the Christian declares the glorious strength of Christ. It's a 13-chapter autobiographical sketch of that truth. Now, this is a terrifying book to preach then because we are all, <laughs> all of us, who we rest in the sovereignty of God, yet frequently we're practical Arminians, like somehow God's going to have me preach the Second Corinthians and say, oh, now's the time I can put it on. <laughs> like this, right? Thanks, Steve, for preaching a book on suffering. Now we're going to suffer. And yet we all know that's not the way our loving Father deals with us, right? We know that. And so I want to give you just in the last few minutes three key texts. Texts that I'd encourage you to memorize as we journey through 2 Corinthians. First of all, the one that reveals this mindset. That, that mindset there that suffering and weakness are the signs of failure for the Christian. You want to see that error on display? You'll see it clearest in 2 Corinthians 5.12. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul says, I'm writing this so that you might be able to defend me, Paul, and yourselves to other people who judge you over weaknesses and sufferings and perceived failures. I'm writing this to embolden you and to strengthen you. It's, it's Paul's way of saying, you feel like a failure, you struggle and question, is God for me? Look what I'm going through. And he says, no. I want to remind you, man looks on the outside, God looks on the heart. He has never left you. He will never forsake you. He is the balm of Gilead who anoints the heads of the hurting, who binds up wounds, who drives away wolves, who is with you in the darkest valley because he is your shepherd. I'm writing to encourage fainting hearts. If you have a fainting heart, 2 Corinthians is for you. Second key text is where true power comes from. Paul's idea then would be this. Suffering in the lives of the followers of Christ helps others to see Christ more clearly in 
and through us. And we'll see it in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, most key, although it will be a dominant theme throughout the book. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And he obviously is saying that when I am weak, it is the strength of Christ. Paul, who sat in Corinth, spending the night in Aquila Priscilla's home one night and is thinking about how he's going to go the next day to the house next door to the synagogue and preach. And the Jews are going to be enraged. They're going to drag him in front of uh, the proconsul and they're going to want to beat him. They'd already beaten up Sosthenes. And God gives him a vision that says, No, Paul, don't go anywhere. I'm your strength. 2 Corinthians is not just for the faint-hearted. It's for the fatigued. It's for the weary among all of us. And then thirdly, why? The mission is seeking to have Christ shown and known. Why does Paul do this? Why does Paul persist with these obstinate, antagonistic people? Why is Paul... Continue, why does Paul continue to be transparent about his own weaknesses and his sufferings? Why, and, and it's not here right now because of uh, carpet cleaning this week, why, some of you may have come and wondered, why do we have, usually have clay pots there? Because we are committed in this local assembly to this idea. We do not demonstrate Christ supremely to one another through our strengths, but through our revealed weaknesses and brokenness. And what's most important is not that we see each other, but that we see Jesus in our friendships, in our marriages, in our singleness, in our parenting, in our communities, in our workplaces. Paul is committed to this church. He keeps pressing on to his enemies because he wants to demonstrate Jesus. Mountains of compassion are turned into pawn shops. When organizations drift from their mission, churches of compassion are turned into critical bodies of antagonist, antagonistic enemies when they drift from their mission. You see, the Corinthian church had drifted from the mission of seeking to make Christ shown and known. And instead, they started believing church was a place to show off how strong they were. I think the church at Corinth needed 2 Corinthians, and by God's grace and his sovereignty, we do too. What role is suffering using in your life right now? Where are you fatigued? Where do you find yourself most weak? Where do you find yourself broken? Where do you need to hear the truth of the word that God has never left you nor forsaken you? And in fact, Jesus said, it's better that I go so I can send you my spirit who would abide in each and every one of you. Where is God calling you to take up your cross? Second Corinthians can teach us how to journey in the shadow of the cross as we head home to glory.